Wednesday Live, I'm Graham Lynch. In today's episode, we will hear from Telstra Infraco about a first for them, the rollout of dark fibre routes across many metro areas of Australia, covering data centres, points of interconnect and cable landing stations. We're also going to hear about the TPG annual results, their first since the merger with Vodafone Australia, and we'll be hearing from CEO Inaki Beretta about their fixed wireless plans. And we're also going to take a look at the results from MNF Group and an insurrection against the ACMA by a range of RSPs over service standards. But first, focus group. They issued their results this week, which were pretty good, effectively stable revenues and a profit increase. CEO Kevin Russell declared the three-year transformation plan that he announced in 2019 was now complete, and he was now setting his attention to investing in and upgrading the network. I spoke with Kevin this week and asked him first up to talk me through the results and specifically the network business, which showed a 11% uptick. Yeah, well, I think in terms of the, um, the revenue growth for the half uh, has been, I would, I would suggest, more the revenue flow through from work that's been done over the last 18 months, couple of years, uh, combined with you know some, some COVID uplift and bandwidth. So yes, it's been a, a really good revenue period, but I, I would say that we've probably had a good revenue growth the last couple of halves in terms of how the core business is, is winning in, in enterprise and government uh, and, and in the base wholesale market. So, so I don't think it's a sudden shift, but I do think there's some good trends coming for the second half and, and beyond. So the big, probably the big benefit we got in this half, uh, unquestionably the expansion of our, our core federal government contract, upgrading that by 30%. You know, one, is that, one it was an important contract to, to retain, but to upgrade it by, you know, slightly over 30% was really good. And, and that went to the, the heart of the investments we've made in secure capability. The improvements Andrew Wellblood has made and Julia Walsh has made, just in terms of bringing on bigger enterprise businesses that leverage, that look for higher bandwidth, that's been a, a theme that's been unfolding over the last 12 months and start to pay dividends in, in the half. We absolutely have made good inroads on winning some of those key competitive uh, hyperscale fiber builds. So the wholesale team have, have performed well there and they've also done well in market on on incremental capacity growth. Uh, the Leo satellite uh, is interesting and that's maybe one of the ones you're alluding to, Graham, which is, you know, that's a, a market opportunity that wasn't on our radar screens, it wasn't on uh, our pipeline 12 months, 12 months ago that, you know, we started engaging with and we have you know, the first ground station already constructed and we've actually done more than one at this stage. So You had a very strong message that you emphasised in the analyst call earlier today regarding the upgradability of the focus network to handle future needs. Um, can, you, can you talk me through some of the potential there um, and, and particularly in the light, as you mentioned on the conference call, of, of announcements from some other players about activity in that area. 
Yeah, so I, I think there, there is an ongoing role that we have to play in educating the marketplace on our, our network reach, our investment plans to broaden that reach, and also our ability to scale up our existing infrastructure. So I think today we gave visibility on both of those pieces. So I think with the, with the IPO in New Zealand uh, on a track, I think it was absolutely was important for us to start to give visibility as to where uh, those funds would be been targeted in terms of expanding our network and, and looking at capitalizing some of the market trends that we are seeing. At the same time, you know, there has and is noise around more fiber coming to market, newer fiber coming to market, and and probably some some uh, background noise around old fiber versus new fiber scalability versus uh, modern infrastructure. So I think it's important for us to make it clear that our infrastructure is very scalable. And indeed, if you look at the Adelaide Darwin Brisbane uh, upgrade that we just completed, then we are actually scaling up the network today and we'll be scaling up other parts of the network to to find the gigabit links next year. So, so I think I think is I think rather than our, our approach, Graham, has been more to to talk of what we've done rather than what we're going to do. I think we're moving into a different phase of our of our life cycle now, which is what we are looking at investment. We are moving on to the front front foot on growth opportunities. Therefore, there's more of an onus for us to be communicating what we're going to do and what we can do. Okay. Now, you you, you mentioned today, and this is the key message in your release to the stock exchange, that the three-year turnaround program that you first flagged when you became the CEO was now complete ahead of schedule. So, on what basis and, and what types of measures and KPIs have, have you declared that program to be complete? I've declared that program to be complete on the basis that we are not prioritizing fixing stuff, we are prioritizing growing, we're prioritizing capitalizing the market opportunity and growing the business. So, you know, we had obviously internally a vast range, a vast array of of systems, processes, operational capability they wanted to turn around and fix and complete. But on a macro level, the key part of the turnaround was fix the business and establish the operational platform to invest from and capitalize on market opportunities. What we've done today is draw a line on the, draw a line on the, and say, okay, the fix it phase is over. This is now about capital structure and investing to capitalize on market opportunities. I absolutely recognize that you always have ongoing systems to change and improvements to make, but there absolutely is a, a change in psyche within an organization when you start to raise large amounts of capital and look at deploying that, that capital into significant incremental investments. We have not had the platform capability, I would say even right to do that until now. And that, that, is the, that is the phase I was alluding to today. The, the, the fix-it phase, the turnaround phase is over. And it doesn't, it's not got a perfect set of metrics attached to it. it as much as anything else, it is a, 
a phase of how we are prioritising our activity and our investment. The phase now is about growth. Bocus's priority now is to maximise our growth opportunities in the market and to prioritise capital investment to deliver, the, to deliver that growth. That's a different phase. Got it. And okay. I think it's important for us as an organisation to realise it's a different phase. Because in some ways, in my view, it is, it is sometimes easier to fix stuff than it is to get in the front foot and really, really win and maximise your potential. Because, because you're, now, uh, you're now more visible. You're now in, in competitive sites. You've got all the opportunities, but you also have more competitors looking at you. And now you've got money, or you will have money to invest. And you are accountable for delivering the return on those investments, not just improving the return on the previous investments. Yeah, okay. Now, now obviously right now, focus is the, the subject of a potential bid from Mira and, as of yesterday, Aware Super. Um, how does that constrain your freedom um, in terms of... Um, making new announcements and strategic changes for the business. Is it a constraint or was it business as usual for you? Uh, for now, it's business as usual. There's obviously a process, there's due diligence, there's a non-binding offer. Um, you know, that can change if, if a binding offer is, is made. Uh, but I, I believe if a binding offer is made by... Uh, an organization like Mira, which is an infrastructure business and, and is looking for uh, someone like Focus to continue to invest, then I, I would expect that we would have the ability to to continue to invest and maximize those expansion and growth opportunities. Okay, finally, I just wanted to uh, have a quick discussion on the retail business and, and some good results there with revenue growth in the consumer area. What do you see as um, the future prospects for Focus Retail? So I think it's a, I think it's a great question. We, we, are, we are moving into a very interesting phase in retail because it, it's been such a hard period on, on voice revenue erosion and then MBN migration. And I think Anthony and his team have done a fantastic job. And it is a team. It's a, it's a great series of individuals who micromanaged that business uh, stabilized the, the consumer part, the consumer brands, and they are looking to start to grow. And you know, the, the question will be as we as we enter this phase: is that best done within the focus environment, or is it best done outside the focus? I, I look at the retail business as being a, a very valuable business, great cash flow, good prospects for growth. Uh, I would expect us to be having. Conversations over the coming you know, year around how best to maximise the opportunities in retail, whilst we're trying to maximise the opportunities in focus network services. And I don't have any details just now as to what that means because I think it's fair to say that we've, you know, we've, we've been busy on on the New Zealand IPO, but I absolutely recognise that at some point in the next calendar year, we should be turning our heads to how we enable the retail business to, to grow to its potential as well. Now, on to 
Telstra. With all the activity taking place in fibre investment and consolidation, Telstra made a big statement this week, don't forget about us. It released some 250 predefined routes across the capital cities for dark fibre, the first time that Telstra has done such a thing, and also, technically, the first product released by its Infraco spin-off. I was joined by Infraco fibre executive Catherine Jones on the day of the announcement to talk all about it. It's a milestone. It's nearly three years in the making since it was announced that uh, Infraco would be established. Um, and we've launched uh, Infraco's very first product, which is a Telstra Infraco Dark Fibre. So um, this is really, um, uh, you know, this will unlock a lot of new value and opportunities uh, for our leading and trusted uh, network for customers. Our use case is very much around um, setting up those predefined uh, data dark fiber links between mm. data center to data center, uh, data center to NB, NBN poise, NBN poise to NBN poise, cable landing stations to data centers, as well as data center to business premises. Okay. So what's the specific advantage of buying dark fiber as opposed to buying a wavelength? Why would I do one and not the other? Well, the beauty of dark fiber is that the customer can self-manage their pair. They can connect their own equipment at those points of interconnect or data centres, and then they can run it as they please. So that's that. That's that. That the customer generally is out for a dark fibre product. That's the reason they're wanting to do that, so that they can put their own protocols on them, allowing them to manage their bandwidth, um, network protocols, features, um, and they are generally wanting to create their own specialised offerings, and they want that complete control. Now we've seen. Um some of these new small dark fiber operators like Fiber Connects and so on. And they're, they're, they're talking about incredible numbers of fiber pairs. Like I think, I still can't believe this, but they told me 13,000 uh, fibers into one data center in Sydney. Um, how many spare fiber pairs does Infraco have to sell to the market? I would have thought Telstra would have been using a lot of what's there. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a really good point. So if you think our network is about, two, it is 250 thousand sheath kilometers so um, the scale and breadth of it is quite significant and we do have that vast fiber holding that's been built up over many years um, and there is fiber vacant that, and, and available um, so and what we're doing as part of this is actually utilizing uh, fiber that has been made available um, as a result of that build-up over years. That's not to say that we won't, we're not continuing to invest in our network as well, like proactively building additional cables so that we can deliver in a timely fashion for our customers. So um, we're using, yeah, very much around looking at, uh, and you can imagine it builds up over time and there's spare fibres. And if you think of the fibre itself, it's made up of, can be up to thousands of small fibre pairs. So there is that, there's going to be fibres that are unutilised, uh, and that's what we're tapping into and want to unlock the value on. You're, st- you're talking about starting off um, in a few capital cities and then initially available in most capital cities and to more metro and regional centres in the future. Can you give me a little more detail on that plan? So the so what we'll be launching tomorrow is that will be those pre- 250 predefined paths that are available in the six capital cities. Um, they'll be connecting to a total of 68 metro data centres, 78, 78 NBN points of interconnect and two cable landing stations. So um, that, that's, that's the initial launch. But and those cable landing stations are in Sydney and Perth, I take it? These are the East Coast will be... Oh, the two East Coast landing stations. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So, so that's the, the first lot. And what we'll do is, we, as part of uh, future cases, we'll look at future use cases to expand outside of those, those metro areas. Okay, and, and who do you think will be the types of customers who will be interested in buying these fibre pairs? Um, look, definitely it'll be the, the, the data centre providers, the global carriers, um, the internet service providers who are interested, and the, yeah, the over-the-top over providers as well. Now, as I alluded to, um, there are a number of other players offering dark fibre in some of these markets. What, what do you see as the unique selling proposition for Telstra? Uh, the network's already built. It's already in the ground. It's working. The breadth and scale definitely uh, is an advantage. It, it's it's the legacy. It, it is the legacy of the experience as well that we've got, absolutely. Um, but the, the network itself... Um, you know, provide. We've got the capacity. We can provide flexibility, security, and and the speed that customers are looking for. And it's there's the glasses in the ground, as they say. Um, well, look, this is as I said, yeah, this is definitely the uh, first in a series of offerings that we will bring to the market that will give, um, you know, again, like the customers' capacity, flexibility, security, and speed um, that they need to unlock their business opportunities so uh, there will be more to come um, but we're just not in a position to share now on to tpg um, their first results since they merged with vha last year and in keeping with the other major telcos i guess they had a single digit revenue decline six percent overall but probably the big message from their results day was that they think they can economise on payments to NBN and move some of their fixed broadband customers onto their wireless network. Let's hear CEO Inaki Barota uh, talk about that in his own words. Look, in terms of the fixed wireless, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, to be talking about the speed of, of rollout. What I would say is... We are looking at at, uh, at the fixed wireless mainly as a as a opportunity on those plans that are of course in the in the 12 meg, which which you uh, identify, and that is something that is um, at this stage quite independent of the technology, whether it's 4G or 5G. We do have the benefit of a lot of a spectrum, and also we have the benefit of having to roll out a brand new network. So we are actually, as, as we deploy 5G, we're just not installing an overlay of 5G on top of our old equipment. We have been, in a way, forced to bring uh, brand new equipment, which allows us to use uh, um, equipment that, uh, that will improve the, the total capacity of our spectrum holdings. So we will go with twin beam antennas and, and other technologies on existing spectrum that later can be used in 5G, which basically tells you that the capacity that we have is ample, uh, and that is why we believe that fixed wireless is a big opportunity for us. So far, we have a uh, few thousand customers on this product. Like I said, in, in Vodafone brand, we are doing um, a number of, of uh, user-friendly trials on other brands, and soon you will see uh, a bit more on our 5G product as we launch it before the, the end of, of this half of the year. 
Now, Simon Ducks, our chief editor, was on the story this week. Uh, what was your takeout, Simon? Yeah, it was uh, quite interesting, Graham. When you look at uh, Inyaki calling uh, for uh, these on-net savings, because it wasn't just fixed wireless that he was suggesting it could be happening in. He was suggesting all of their network assets, as much as they can potentially transition, uh, could be uh, up for, for up for grabs essentially. So you're looking at. He made the interesting uh, figure of, of he thinks that uh, TPG could save 50 million annually for every 100,000 customers that it can move onto its own infrastructure. On the consumer side, you know, that works out to about $500 per con- uh, customer. And if you look, they've got a, a MBM base of 1.9 million. Uh, and of that, there's about 700,000 that are in the uh, 12 to 25 megabit um services so uh he's really looking at this closely and i think uh that this stuff is going to be absolutely ripe for potentially moving on net and that's why you've seen this uh talk about ramping up 4g fixed wireless and also launching a 5g fixed wireless service using their 3.6 gigahertz spectrum in the first half of this year now we've had a look at uh the uh Uh, TPG map uh, to see 5G coverage and uh, we must admit at this stage it looks pretty spotty but uh, it just shows you in the coming months they're going to be really ramping up some of their uh, uh, build out essentially Uh, concentrating a lot uh, he talked a little bit bit about adding uh, small cell technology to uh, the new uh, Nokia macro cells that they have and uh, he uh, suggested that uh, they now have 5G services live in 350 suburbs across major cities, including Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, Canberra, the Gold Coast, as well as Newcastle. So you can see, uh, as you mentioned, uh, all three big mobile operators uh, have struggled in this uh, results season, uh, TPG the latest uh, uh, to show its uh, figures, and that's why uh, margins are going to be absolutely key. One uh, trend that we picked up across all three was that they all suffered with um, a handset uh, dr- uh, drop of sales uh, as this stuff is shifting towards uh, the JB Hi-Fi's and the Kogans of the world, and so they're making less revenue on some of that. TPG also suffered a little bit of service revenue decline as well. Uh, Unlike uh, the other two big mobile operators, they're a little bit more exposed to the international um, student uh, market. And, uh, of course, uh, with our COVID uh, pandemic restrictions, uh, that's actually uh, hit their numbers as well. And uh, Inyaki suggested that this is uh, going to continue for at least three months into the new uh, financial season. And uh, I think uh, he put a figure on it saying that the COVID impact was uh, 90 million on reported uh, EBITDA uh, in addition to MBN and regulatory headwinds. So in terms of uh, fixed broadband, uh, TPG grew its share in the fixed broadband market. Uh, The subscriber base went up 6% uh, to 2.17 million, which was a net growth of 117,000. I've mentioned about uh, uh, the pinch on mobile. Uh, Postpaid ARPU decreased 5.1% to $40.90, but uh, Inyaki uh, suggested that they had a fairly good last quarter uh, with a bit more stability on ARPU and also a successful 
iPhone 12 launch, which uh, we've seen on the other two operators, also saw a little bit of a kickback. So potentially hoping for some steadiness there. Uh, one of the other things that Inyaki was talking about was uh, really trying to kick on with the uh, corporate sales. Uh, so we're going to see them ramping up a little bit on that and particularly trying to get people uh, on net. Although this was interesting, although they seem to be at war in the consumer market regarding uh, MBN and the wholesale margins, uh, they were pretty keen to stress that MBN is a, a, a big collaborator in terms of getting out um, sales uh, in the corporate market. And uh, they mentioned the fact that they're now leading on uh, enterprise Ethernet sales. So while um, the corporate segment pro forma revenue declined 7%, uh, uh, Inyaki went through a whole bunch of new services, uh, including moving more mobile services and doing more cross-selling, that they're going to try and push into the uh, enterprise market as well. Okay, thanks very much for that take, Simon. Thanks again, Graham. Continuing our look at the week that was, uh, we can just keep on rolling with results, and uh, we'll take a look at our MNF, uh, my netphone with Rowan Pierce, the executive editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Rowan. Hey, Graham. Okay, um, good results for MNF. Yes. Yeah, it was pretty solid. I think though we can't really start to talk about the MNF results unless you talk about Renee Sugo's beard which made an appearance during the results briefing and is very impressive. I think probably one of the more impressive ones in the industry. And I'm glad we've got that picture on comms day too. So yeah, so, solid results. Um, so M&F's revenue was flat for the half at 112 million, but it also had um, EBITDA growth and profit was also up. And also it's kind of recurring revenue for its global wholesale um, business was growing really strongly, I guess on back of the demand from some of the kind of global cloud communications providers. So Renee also said that um, it added a million phone numbers to its network during the half, which is actually a record for M&F. I think the, the other thing, like beyond the kind of financial figures, the um, other interesting thing that came up during the briefing was actually that um, uh, they've actually begun tech trials in Singapore with three of their uh, existing international clients. So it's quite a milestone. It's really M&F's first foray outside of Australia and New Zealand. Um, so although those were kind of like some of the international clients of M&F, uh, John Cleaver, who's the wholesale CEO, also said that they're seeing strong kind of domestic demand in Singapore. The other interesting thing is that he, um, he said that uh, M&F has actually conducted a desktop analysis on its kind of next target overseas market, and it's already shortlisted like half a dozen countries in the um, Southeast Asian uh, region. And I think also they're kind of expecting that, you know, Singapore was a challenge for them, but then the next market they go into after Singapore is probably going to be a lot easier for them. Okay, well, moving on. Um, of course, for the past couple of years, um, the powers that be have been trying to implement a strong service regime over NBN broadband services. So it was the uh, competitive safeguards program. There's a part A, a part B, a part C. Who knows where it might end? Maybe they'll run out of letters. But this week, the RSP struck back and uh, had some words to say. Tell us all about it. Yeah, look, I think we're seeing, um, we've seen the kind of uh, unity in the industry you only normally see when the topic of CVC comes up, really. So what it is, the, the ACMAs propose these new kind of retail service standards, which kind of build on some of the measures that have been introduced in um, WBA4, which is obviously NBNCO's most recent wholesale agreement. So WBA4 con contains like a series of rebates governing things like, you know, 
if MVN code misses an appointment or misses a fault rectification timeframe, that kind of thing, um, then it hands a, a rebate to the RSP. What the ACMA has done is proposed that those rebates should flow through directly to, um, to the end user, um, except in those kind of circumstances where there's, there's something that directly mitigates a particular harm. So, for example, if you have a 4G backup service, it kicks in when there's an NBN fault or something like that. Um, and I guess the other, the other key proposal from the ACMA in these standards is that, that you know, RSPs would have to make kind of like retail service standard commitments with their NBN services. So uh, a lot of RSPs have been upset with this. Um, we saw a, a joint letter from Telstra, Optus, TPG, Telecom, Vocus and Biorepublic to the ACMA basically pushing back against the proposals and basically saying that, um, you know, uh, uh, one issue is that you know, RSPs are saying that the ACMA hasn't really recognised that they incur a cost when they're dealing with end users over some of these issues. So they don't want the rebate to, you know, force to hand over 100% of that rebate when they're incurring a cost um, because of a uh, problem with the NBN service. Um, the, the other thing is really they're worried that it's going to blur the line between the responsibilities of um, NBN Co. and the RSPs. Um, and so Telstra said that basically if you introduce retail service standards, um, which you know, partly involved as a network they don't control, the MBN access network, RSP is probably going to commit to the kind of bare minimum of standards. And I guess the overall message to the ACMA from RSP seems to be that there's no real evidence of market failure in this area yet, so why introduce new regulations? Okay, I guess that's uh, what you get when you value broadband at about the price of a cup of coffee. Thank you very, very much, Ryan, for joining us today. I value coffee a lot. Cheers, Graham. Well, that's it for Comms Day Live this week. See you next time.